Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. The word of the Lord. In all these long months, rife with confusion, boredom, isolation, the hoe and the hum, the same four walls with only a square of blue light connecting us to our friends, neighbors, loved ones, strangers, trolls. It has been a long, hard season of death, reaping, killing, destroying, tearing down, crying, throwing stones, war, hate, loneliness, and just not listening. We can sit in that and break and moan and fall on our faces flat on the floor and holler out, why me, to a God we often doubt and we feel forgotten and rejected, so deep in the bleep of humanity's nasty underbelly. But this is where we turn the page on the rage and roil and calm the boil of our mistrust, our anger, our self-righteousness and panderings. Pondering turns to wondering and a single small spark, just one spark is all. And then we know in our soul that this is not the whole of the truth, that there is and has been and always so much more, so much wonder to hold in awe that we've chosen not to see. But once you see, you cannot unsee, cannot turn away from the hope of the truth of the promise of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Then your sorrow drowns down, down it goes as hope flows free and joy floats all the way to the top with a pop. And we pause and give thanks One foot in the mire, but hearts full, pounding, strong and free. And we enumerate one, two, three, all the joys that have come, even within this season of confusion, seasoned liberally with delights unexpected, new babies with toothless grins and chubby wubby cheeky weekies, gardens we planted small and large and okay, maybe we just stole some tomatoes from a neighbor, but still we gather together on that same blue box or along the blocks, six feet parted, smiling behind our masks, arms aching to hug friends, neighbors, kind strangers. We gather our stones, line them up at the ready for when we can rebuild again. We find other people's treasures that we part with freely as we condo our homes, making space in our spaces so our minds have room to think and plan, listen and share, cry and laugh and weep and dance. Yes, dance like no one is watching because nobody is watching. Well, maybe the kids are watching and absolutely the Lord your God above all and in all and through all is watching and his love everlasting eternal sets your feet on a rock so you can rock and roll and rock the baby and rock your fine self into a place of love and peace and strength and truth in the blessed assurance that the seasons will go round and round and this too shall pass and nothing is new under the sun, son, beloved one. 
sit in your grief and stew and wail if that is what you need right now. But hope, take up hands with that grief, hold them together and know ultimately that God knows the ways and means and that, that my family is enough. The Old Testament reading is from Ruth chapter two, verses eight through 12. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about you, uh, all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I've heard people talk about having life verses before. I'm not sure if I have a life verse, but if I do, I think it's probably somewhere in this story. Ever since college, I've really wrestled with what it means to be faithful to God. This story is one that I keep coming back to because it completely redefines how I imagine being faithful to God. Okay, so I wanna take you back in time to 2007. It's my senior year at Virginia Tech. I've been studying math and computer science and just loving it. But I was also really uneasy about what would come next for me after I graduated. I wanted very earnestly to be faithful to God, but I just didn't see how I could do that while working at an office. I think being faithful to God and having real integrity with my faith meant a lot to me because of what happened after my parents' divorce. My parents had been married for 17 years and I had known them both to be Christians that entire time. The year after my parents' divorce though, my mom had a memorable con conversation with my brother and I, my brother and me, where she shared how she had lost her faith in Christ. I had such a hard time understanding how she could carry her faith for so long and then let it go. To this day, my mom is still finding answers about God, this world, and how we should live somewhere else. Ever since that experience with my mom, I've really wondered what it means to live out your life authentically. During my, during my time in college, I had gotten involved with InterVarsity and I ultimately found myself going to the Urbana Missions Conference. That led to me serving two years in Spain as a teacher for missionary kids. A part of me really loved teaching. I got to teach my favorite subjects, math and computers, and I loved the kids I got to work with. But it, but it really didn't feel like a good fit for me. And I didn't know what to do with that. I think the hardest part was that I thought that by not teaching, by not going on the mission field, and by not living inside a community of Christians, I didn't have a chance of serving God and living authentically. I came back from Spain heartbroken, and that feeling actually continued to stick with me for several years. I eventually got back into computer science, but I felt pretty defeated about how to live my life. That was true 
until I reread this story and realized Boaz is more than just a nice guy. He's more than a kinsman redeemer. And he's more than just a blessing to the community he's in. The end of Ruth provides a genealogy of Boaz that lets us in on a little secret. Boaz is a direct ancestor of Jesus Christ. I still remember how that hit me. I absolutely couldn't believe it. Here's the thing. Boaz was never a missionary. He wasn't a disciple or a prophet. He didn't lead a church. He worked the fields. It wasn't IBM, but it was a business. What was special about Boaz was how he ran his business. He looked out for the community. He looked out for the vulnerable. He was kind and gentle. He was unassuming, even though he was in a position of authority. When I came back from Spain and read this story, I realized that serving God doesn't just happen in the mission field. It happens everywhere. I wanted to share this story with you because it gave me a real sense of freedom about serving God wherever life takes me. That was a really profound experience for me, and it's been a real encouragement as well. I still have so much to figure out about what it looks like to be faithful to God. But in the meantime, I'm grateful to know that God is happy to work through me wherever I go and whatever I do. The New Testament reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-17. through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter's epistle was written to Jesus followers who had been dispersed across a number of regions. In the introduction to the letter, he refers to the recipients as the elect exiles. These Jesus followers were being persecuted for their faith, and Peter is writing to encourage them to stand firm in the trials they were facing and to suffer well for the cause of righteousness. Throughout the letter, Peter reminds them that their conduct as Jesus followers is different because they have a hope outside their difficult circumstances and they are called to be holy, 
which is to say set apart because they belong to a new kingdom. In verse eight, he calls on the believers to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Remember, the recipients of this letter are Christians that have been dispersed over a, a number of regions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These believers were unlikely to ever meet each other outside of their local communities and home churches. And yet he calls on them to have unity, sympathy, to care deeply for those who were facing trials and to have a love for each other that was familial in nature. I think it can be easy for us in our large and divided individualistic country to forget that we, like these early Christians, are connected to the church with a capital C, that is the whole body of Christ in a special way. The idea is that we have something in common with the Southern Baptist in Mississippi and the Lutheran in Minnesota and the non-denominational Christian in the suburbs that is much more significant than what we have in common with our neighbor who votes the same way we do or has the same hobbies that we do. And we are called to have a radical love toward each other. We have a sibling bond that is stronger than the bond, than even the bond we share with our biological family. This unity of mind, this brotherly love and tenderheartedness should be noticeable to unbelievers. We should reflect a loving unity toward each other, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that is sharply distinct and different from the division we see plaguing our nation and the world right now. And we'll see more on why this is important when we get to verse 15. Peter then tells these early Christians suffering persecution that they are not to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is a revolutionary way to live. Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We don't often think of having enemies anymore. I can't think of anyone in my life that I would refer to as an enemy. But in reality, anyone who is at enmity with God is also opposed to us. And yet we are not to declare war on them, but to love them, to offer them hospitality, to pray for them and come alongside them when they suffer, to turn the other cheek when they hate us and they will hate us and to advocate on their behalf and for their benefit. This is something that cannot go unnoticed by unbelievers either. They should see how we are different in the way we love. And this can't be emphasized enough. In John, Jesus tells his disciples to love one another. And by this love that they have for others, all people will know that they are his disciples. We see in just these few short passages that we, Jesus followers are to love each other, that is other believers with a brotherly love and that we are to love our enemies by not repaying evil with more evil and actually pursuing peace and seeking their good. We are to be a loving people. In fact, defined by our love first to God and then to our neighbor. We are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to love our enemy. There is no one that we are not commanded to love. Peter was writing this to Christians who in just a few short years would be living under the fatally oppressive rule of Nero. Some of these same believers to whom 
Peter wrote would be burned alive as torches for Nero's garden or boiled in oil, crucified in the streets, and Peter himself would be crucified upside down. And yet he still writes in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. If you haven't read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I recommend it. It's incredible to read the accounts of those who are being killed for the sake of the gospel. Not one account records bitterness or resentment, but a deep Christ-like love for their executioner, sometimes using their last breath to pray for the salvation of those who ordered their brutal death. I imagine some of these martyrs were encouraged by the words of Peter. How can we live so differently from the world? How can we have the have hope when the world and those around us feel nothing but hopelessness. We have a hope that is otherworldly. We have a joy that is so sure and so true that nothing in our present circumstances can take it away. We do not rely on our present circumstances, our government, our family or friends, our bank accounts, or anything that is so temporary to bring us hope. Those we come into contact with should see that in us. When we are filled with the hope of the gospel, that hope should overflow out of us in the way we talk to each other, in the way we talk to others about difficult circumstances, in the way we talk about the future. And forgive me for being too pointed, but it should dictate the way we talk about, think about, feel about, and act about this upcoming election. Our hope is in the one true God who created the world with the sound of his voice, who causes kings to rise up and nations to fall, and who uses all things, yes, all things, including things that were meant for evil, for his glory and for our good. And I mentioned a minute ago that the way we live our lives should be noticeably different to unbelievers. Verse 15 tells us that we should be prepared to give others a defense. This is the word apologia, where we get the word apologetics from. It means we should be prepared to give a reasoned argument for why we are so hopeful. And we are to do it with gentleness and respect. Others should be able to see our hopefulness and should be so compelled by it that they have to ask us, how in the world can you be so hopeful when all I see is reason to be hopeless? But how can we respond with a reasoned argument if we don't spend time meditating on the hope we have in Jesus? If we don't spend time in prayer with him or reading his word? If we spend our free time scanning headlines and social media, we work ourselves up into the same hopelessness that unbelievers have, because that's what those headlines are meant to do to us. We are called to be different. What grounds us is a deep theology an intimate knowledge of Jesus. Our biblical worldview provides a framework for us to endure trials and still have hope. We know that our God is sovereign and we know that he is good. We know that Jesus has rescued us out of the darkness of this world and that even our suffering here is temporary. We know that Jesus suffered and so he is able to understand deeply our suffering and he cares for us. So if you are a Christian and feeling hopeless right now, remember where your hope lies. 
take time to read your Bible and pray because your hope will be restored. Be prepared to pass that hope along to others. When they see it, they will want to have what you have. And if you don't know Christ yet, if you've been attending in town for a number of years or just a short time, and you're wondering why there is so much hope in our liturgy, in our prayers, in the music we sing and in the sermons we hear, and you want to know what you must do to be saved and possess that hope, Peter tells us in the book of Acts that it's this simple, repent and believe. Jesus paid it all. It's a free gift. He lived the perfect life for you and died on your behalf. He rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father advocating on your behalf. He loves you. He offers hope that you will not find outside of him. And he's calling you. Repent and believe. You will find hope in him. <laughs>